Kelly, what was going on in your life when you decided to live in California? You left, was it Texas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I grew up in the panhandle of Texas and I had you know, just turned 18. I had graduated high school and USC had accepted me to their theater program. So I was this young girl with big hair and big ideas moving out from West Texas to go to the big city. And, um, you know, I had grown up doing uh, speech and theater in high school, and I knew that in some capacity I wanted to be in the entertainment industry. So uh, when USC started to recruit me my sophomore year of high school, I was, you know, about 15, uh, I saw that as my opportunity. Um, I applied to a bunch of other schools, um, but USC was the one that I wanted to go to, and, and I knew it. Um, there was no way that my mom could have afforded uh, my, my education there, so I made sure that I worked really hard in school and I graduated at the top of my class and I got grants and scholarships and they covered most of my tuition for the four, for the four years that I was there. I did have to work. I worked a 40 hour a week job when I was at USC, um, but that's, that's how I got my start. I, you know, I moved out here with um, less than 1300 bucks in my pocket and just a bunch of hopes and dreams and you know years and years later some of them are are starting to come true and i'm sorry you drove out here <laughs> i drove out here how long I, did it take um it took a couple of days you know i i had a I, I i remember having all of these like you know cds from the late 90s like you know alanis morissette and that kind of stuff <laughs> blasting <laughs> um you know i was a big tori amos fan but that's you know sort of my that was my road trip in music, but uh, yeah. And I was the only person, you know, in my dorm with a car. So I made a lot of friends my freshman year. <laughs> what were you thinking about on that two day road trip? Of course you were obeying the speed laws, I'm sure. Sure, 18, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I was thinking, you know, I should have been really scared, but I was so excited. I was just so excited because I was leaving I knew I was leaving this part of my life behind and I, and I knew, I mean, I don't think that there are many people that can be so certain about what they want to do with their lives. And, and that's what's kept me in this industry for as long as I have, because I've known for so long that this is what I wanted. You know, I'm not as successful as I'd want to be right now, but I know that one day if I keep working, you know, it will happen. Um, so I was thinking on that drive out there that, you know, this is, this is the start. This is the start of my life. And what was the first like destination? Do you actually drove to the USC campus? No, actually, I I stayed with a friend of mine in the, the Santa Barbara area at first because I left before school started. I literally could not wait to, to get out um, to California. So I stayed with a friend on the on the West Coast for a bit, and for a good you know five six weeks before school started, I had the first summer of freedom that I think you know I'd ever had in my life. I was eighteen. And I was just, you know, able to go up and down the coast. I did have to go to campus a couple times. Um, on one occasion, I was trying to figure out something with the financial aid office, and this is uh, this is mortifying. But I didn't know how to parallel park a car. Oh. You don't need to do that in West Texas. Um, so I was on the campus, and this, you know, I was trying to park my my lovely POS car, um, and this officer knocked on my window, and I rolled it down, and I'm like. Oh, I'm like, oh my God, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble. And he's like, do you want me to just do that for you? Oh, wow. <laughs> so okay. I was like, okay. So he just, he parked my car for me. It was very nice of him. Very nice. <laughs> wow. Clearly I needed the help. 
how does I'm sorry, forgive me. How how does USC recruit people? Like, were you already applying to the program, or how does no? That work? What had happened is I was doing speech and theater competitions. So Texas is like a four A five A school. It's just it's just the way the districts are broken up. So you do these competitions, speech and theater. You can do prose and poetry. You can do dramatic interpretation. Um, it's actually called the NFL. It's the National Forensics Leagues is, is part of who it's hosted by. And I remember when we were all competing in high school, we were told, you know, Brad Pitt was in the NFL. So this was, you know, this oh. was a big thing for, you know, for us. And I actually, I remember my, my senior year, I went to nationals and Josh Gad had made it into the finals. And of course, you know, we all watched him and it was amazing. And then, you know, years later, he's, he's Josh Gad. But that was my first introduction to him. So a lot of people uh, you know, who got their start, especially on the acting side of things, that's, that's how they, they got into it. So, but you know, the recruiters from USC, they, they you know, all of the colleges kind of follow the, the people that track in the tournaments and that's how my, my start happened. And then once you were up and running, uh, you know, you had your job, you were going to classes, how are you acclimating to the difference of Texas? I Forgive me, I've only, been through on the, air, the uh, via the airport, but you know I, I realize it's a different. You know, there's there's southern charm, yeah. there's manners, there's things that <laughs> maybe LA doesn't have, and maybe on the opposite. How are you acclimating to that? You know, it was very funny. I grew up actually a left-handed vegetarian Democrat, so <laughs> I kind of acclimated very quickly to the California climate. Um, I'm no longer a vegetarian, but um, I I fit in pretty quickly. Um, you know, certainly dealing with, uh, you know, the, the culture shock, you know, when you're 18. Um, I, think it, I think it's better to do something like that when you're younger. I think you're more open to taking risks than you would be, say, if you were, were older. Like, I, I'm very glad that I, I made the move to go when I did um, when I was 18, because had I been, you know, in my late 20s or my 30s and established somewhere else, I might have been too afraid to, to let go and, and, and try something new. So you were raised in Texas. Are there any Texan sayings that you kind of live your life by? I know that it seems like there's a lot of everything's bigger in Texas. They have just different interesting, <laughs> different um, interesting sayings. I think one of the funniest ones that you can get away with saying, and I think that you know the the joke's kind of out on this one is "bless your heart." You know, that's just something that you say when you know you're being polite, but really it's casting a lot of shade at somebody. Um, I think another funny you know, saying from the South is uh, jumpier than a fart in a griddle. Oh, and that means that you're nervous. So I've used that on occasion and people have looked at me like, what, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Um, but no, I find, you know, there's one of the screenplays that I, that I wrote, the one that actually launched my, my career with my agents and my manager and, you know, won the UCLA screenwriting competition. Um, it's it's inspired by my grandmother, and it's it's called the Baltimore School of Charm. Um, it's about a woman in the 1950s who murders her abusive husband and goes on the run by pretending to be an East Coast debutante, and she hides out and she pretends to affect these manners from the you know Emily Post's book uh, Etiquette. So she she that's how she disguises herself. So for me, growing up with that sort of you know grace and charm was something that my grandmother instilled in me from a very young age. Um, you know, she, my grandmother didn't murder my grandfather, but she did get out of a really bad situation, and she you know went off and you know did her own thing, and she came back years later. And this is a woman who hadn't graduated high school. 
Um, you know, she, she wasn't formally educated, but somehow she started coaching women through the Miss Texas pageants. And, you know, I remember being a child and she would teach me and my sister how to, you know, walk with books on our heads and how to properly get out of a car and how to pump gas. And this is, you know, you, you pump gas, you put your doe skin gloves on because you don't want to get your hands dirty. So there was this sort of genteel nature about her that I really wanted to capture in this character, Millie. And, um, you know, they always say, write the thing that you're afraid of. And I was, I was afraid to tell the story because um, it does deal with a lot of things. It deals with, you know, domestic violence and, you know, getting out of that situation. And it's, it's not pretty. I mean, it's, it's, she, she, she kills her husband in the, in the narrative. Um, but I wanted it to have this underlying element of grace. And the way that I incorporated that was to sort of make the text from Emily Post's book, which is the authority on, on etiquette, um, the underlying theme. I know you've written, you've written scripts, you have plays, stage plays you're working on, and you also have two children's books. So I'm wondering, did you have a parent or grandparent that would like sit you down and read to you and that's where your love of stories developed? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I have one children's book that's published right now with Scholastic. So there are more in the works. I was actually emailing with my editor today. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I thought you had two. Okay, maybe I'm just... I, I will have two. It's in the two. ether, I, yeah. I will, I will. Um, but no, my, it's, it's funny. My, my grandmother was sort of the impetus for, for a lot of the things that I have carried through me with my childhood to an adult. Um, I didn't necessarily have a harmonious environment growing up, so she was this sort of escape for me. And I would spend weekends at her house and she would always, you know, come up with the most amazing games and she had books. And I mean, this is, this is pre-video games and, you know, technology and things like that. So we would play with board games and books and uh, she would constantly read to me, constantly read to me. Um, she would constantly encourage me to write and, you know, act things out. And um, she actually was the inspiration for my first children's book, too. So um, the, the book is called Sleepy Toes, and it's for kids. Now, the way that I, the way that I started to, to write this and how this came to be is um, when I turned 30, I was in a place where I was very, very unhappy with my life, um, and I decided to do something about it. So I created something called a fuck it list, and I hope I can say that. <laughs> yeah, you can. Sure. Okay, so I created I created my fuck it list, mm -hmm. and that was basically, it, it was like a bucket list. And, and yes, there's a, a script about this too, so. Um, but the fuck it list was the things that I was afraid to do in my life. And I just thought, you know what, I'm 30. I, I don't have the luxury of letting fear be the deciding factor for what I want to do anymore. So I did things like I took myself to New York, I went on a trip to Asia, I you know, lost a bunch of weight, and I took my hand at writing a children's book. And it was called uh, Your Feet Are Getting Sleepy. And I had illustrated it myself, and I wrote it, and I self-published it. My background is in you know, marketing and creative direction, so I packaged this whole thing, um, I did an audio recording, you know, I, had a, I hired a, a friend of mine from the Groundlings to, to you know, narrate it and we, uh, I hired a, a musician to score it, you know, it had like a six minute lullaby afterwards like to, to play, you know, kids to sleep and I put all these materials together and I sent it out to every single publisher that I could, you know, think to send it to, you know, anybody that was, op you know, open to queries and I got very close with one publisher but they ultimately passed. So I was like, all right, well, this was a very expensive experiment. And four years later, I get a phone call from a woman at Scholastic. 
she says, hi, you know, my name is so-and-so. Um, I received your submission all these years ago and my boss no longer runs this department, I do. And I was calling to see if you would be interested in publishing with us. Wow. This is four years after I had, you know, self-published and submitted it. So anybody that says self-publishing doesn't lead to, you know, the results at some point, I, I they're not in, there's not all instances where that's applicable. But this, you know, from the time that I made myself do it and got it out there, it unagented, the very first thing that I send out there gets bought by the world's largest publisher. Four years later? Four years later. Unbelievable. Like, like uh, unbelievable. And that sort of kickstarted everything else. And this book, Sleepy Toes, that's what it became. Um, but my grandmother used to do this thing with me, you know, to get me to sleep at night. You know, she'd go, your, your feet are getting sleepy, very, very sleepy. And she'd work her way up, you know, your body until you'd eventually drift off and fall asleep. So I, this is what I put together into this book. And um, my editor saw the value in it. And over 50,000 copies have been sold now. Um, oh. It's, yeah, it's, it's, act, it's done really, really well. Um, and that's, you know, that opened up the door to so many other things. So I, I think that, you know, it, it, was, it was the heart that went into the story that, that propelled it forward. So it's, it's one thing to just, you know, write something. I mean, and writing kids' books is hard. It's, it's harder than writing screenplays, <laughs> believe it or not. Really? Yeah, um, you know, the, the book is only about 30 pages long. But you know, from the time that it got acquired to the time that we finished the revisions to the time it got published, that was a six and a half year stretch. We were, I mean, we worked on revisions for the text for this for, for, for months. Um, but yeah, so that's. And someone else did the illustrations? Or this you did? amazing illustrator named Corey Dorfeld uh, did the, the illustrations. Typically, if you're, and this is this is advice, because I get asked this all the time as a children's book author, do you send illustrations? Should you pay someone to illustrate your stuff for you? No, the answer is no. If you are not inherently an illustrator author, don't pay for someone to do it. And, and don't try to do it yourself, because when your publisher actually does take your book, they will match you with somebody. So they, they're the ones that take care of that. But, but if you are an illustrator author, which is a very, that's a hot commodity. So if you have that talent, then by all means market that out, but not if you're just a writer. And so the second book that you're working on, is at what stage is that in right now? There's a, there's a couple. Oh, <laughs> so there's a couple, okay. There's, there's a couple. So, so there's a lot of them that are just in logline format. There's some that have been you know drafted out into the first iterations. Um, there's, they're in all various phases. It would be it would be unfair for me to pinpoint something right now, but definitely one thing that I always try to do for myself is when I get an idea, I write it down. Like even if it's a silly idea, write it down because you never know when you're going to need to come back to it. And that's kind of where I found myself at right now. So. And where do you keep these ideas? Are they like in a little book or a computer? Um, so I typically put them in a Google sheet. So I, I will write everything in a, in a Google sheet so it's accessible no matter where I'm at. Um, this is another thing that I always make sure that I, I have all of my ideas, pitches, log lines, it, they need to be accessible at any point in time because if you, you, don't, you never know when you're gonna be asked to pitch. Um, I was attending an event, um, we, my, my other project, Daruma, has been um, 
We've started partnering with organizations like the Reef Foundation and Respectability and the Rudderman Foundation. Have, you know, they've, they've taken notice because this features two disabled lead actors, but the movie's not about their disability. We were invited to attend a roundtable event just just to be there, you know, just as special guests. Um, but this was an event that the respectability uh, people had put on to help uh, their, you know, people people with actual disabilities in the industry to try to get work and learn what to do. And I'm sitting there in the lobby, and you know, I'm, I'm waiting for this event to start. And this gentleman comes up to me and he starts talking. I had no idea that it was the featured speaker. <laughs> so he starts asking me, you know, what what are you doing here? You know, what why are you here? And I, I told him about our project and he was like, let me see, let me see. And had I not had it on me, I would have missed an opportunity. So always be prepared. Always be prepared to have your ideas um, accessible. And also too, you never know, like always be open to I know in LA it's easy to get closed off because we don't know yeah. what the person's agenda is, but you just never know what someone could actually might be harmless you know and that sounds like it yeah. something great yeah and i mean it's it's not to say you know have every interaction and looking at what can what can that person do for me but certainly mm. be open and respectful to talking to people um it's very hard if you're shy and i mean i'm not i'm not inherently an outgoing person that's something that i've had to work on um you know when you're meeting with different development execs one of the things that they ask you to do is, you know, to you know, tell me about yourself. That's that's a huge question that you know, gets asked all the time. What they're doing is they're trying to figure out: is this somebody that we can put in a room with the director? Can I put my producers with them? Can I? Can this person be socially competent in that environment, or am I going to regret this hiring decision? So this is this is the first phase of your interview, and you know I, I learned this from from when I was acting as well. Your audition doesn't start when you get in the room. Your audition starts the minute you get out of the car, because you don't know who you're talking to. You don't know if you bump into somebody. You don't know the receptionist. You know, twenty, you know, fifteen years later, whatever. Maybe maybe they turn into something, and if you have a negative interaction, it's going to stick with somebody. So positive action interactions can be neutral, but negative interactions, you will have a very hard time recovering from that. Sure. And when they ask you, tell me about yourself, how much time is appropriate? Some people could go on forever, others be very quick. I think it's really about reading the room. My first general lasted about 45 minutes, which is pretty good. When you, when you read the room, um, you know, if you're in there for 25 minutes or under, you didn't necessarily have the best meeting because it's they're eager to, to get on to the next thing. So um, if your meetings go for an hour or more, you're, you, you've had a good interaction. I mean, obviously be respectful of their time. Um, I met with an executive once who an hour into our meeting, her assistant knocked on the door and said, your coffee's ready. And I was like, <laughs> I was like okay. And it turns out that was code. That was a code that the exec had set up with her assistant to make sure that the you know the meeting was going well. Her response then dictated the next action. So if they were trying to get me out of the room or something like that, then then the assistant would have known to have been like, oh well, your your call is online too, and they would have canned the meeting. So there's there's these subtle things that you know you may not. <laughs> You may not inherently know that you need to look out for, but you've got to be able to control your own nerves. You know, come in with a couple stories, come in with a couple of anecdotes if that if that helps you feel better and uh, just be more personable in a room.
So you drove out here from Texas to attend USC for theater, dramatic arts, mm -hmm. but now you've focused a lot on writing. Yeah. Where did that shift come in? I mean, it's hard to make it as an actor out here. It's really hard. Um, and I knew that I wanted to write. I just didn't know how to tell the stories. And I think that this is something that's inherently different in men and women. And, and I, this, this could be just me. But women, when they don't know how to do something, I find that they tend to try to educate them, sir, themselves first before they, they take the leap and do it. And that may be a good thing, that may be a bad thing. I, I don't know, but that's, that's my particular process. I find that a lot of men are able to just fake it till you make it and just wing it. Um, I always get what's called imposter syndrome. So for me, um, I had, you know, obviously, for, at that point had, had failed with the children's book. You know, when I first started writing um, The Baltimore School of Charm, which is what launched my screenwriting career, um, I hadn't been published yet. That, that came literally six weeks after I'd started the UCLA Extension Writers Program. So I was in, I was in a class with, with this professor, or, uh, sorry, adjunct professor, uh, Justin Trevor Winters. Yeah. Uh, he's fantastic, yes. really great guy. We were, we're still friends, but he, was, he taught me my first screenwriting class. So, you know, as an actor, I knew, how to, I knew how to break a script down. I knew what the beats were, but you know, you never, I never looked at it from the writing standpoint. And I decided this was something that I really wanted to try my hand at. I really, I had a bunch of stories that I had wanted to tell and I didn't quite know how to tell them. So I did what I always do. I started to educate myself on how to do that. So when I got into Justin's class at UCLA, um, and again, this is the extension program. Um, Great program. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, again, uh, this is, this is, I can fully credit my education there and the experience of winning their screenwriting program to propelling me to where I am today. Um, absolutely, their, their instructors are top notch. Um, but I was in Justin's class and you know, we're developing the scripts that we wanna start working on. And I had two, I had two, that I really, I had two stories that I'd really wanted to tell. Um, one of them was the Baltimore School of Charm and the other one is a feature called Daruma, which we will be uh, crowdfunding for in October. We've got it cast, we've got you know, the support of a bunch of organizations and we have Alex Yellen, the director attached. Um, but I ultimately decided to start telling the story of the Baltimore School of Charm. Um, and what's interesting about this story is that it, it happened, I started to tell it before the Me Too movement really took off. Um, it deals with, you know, domestic violence and, you know, it has a very strong female lead. Um, it's set in the 50s. It's inspired by my grandmother's struggle. Um, but this is, this became a very personal story when Justin was, you know, uh, teaching me, you know, and coaching me through, you know, what script to pick. He told me, you know, pick the script that you want to get in bed with for the longest because you're going to be wrestling with it for a long time. So, and I find that my first screenplay was the Baltimore School of Charm and that was the hardest one because I didn't quite know how all the pieces fit together. So I worked on that script for about three years um, before it finally got to its final state and the one where it, it won the competition. Um, and that happened right around when the Me Too movement was happening. So it, it coincided very nicely with, uh, with the current climate. How long, I'm sorry, did it take you to write the script? Three years. Three years. And so was the first draft was how long? Um, 
I think it was probably about 110 pages. Its final state is probably, I think, 97 or 98 pages now. So. Was it one of these things where you were able to just get it all down in a messy form and then work on it, or did it take some time? It you took said it some was time. Difficult? It took a lot of time. Um, you know, this is this is where you start working. For me, my process was figuring out the beats and the characters. And I, you know, I know a lot of people don't put a lot of stock into the competitions, but I do think that as a new screenwriter, as someone who's finding your way and finding your process, if you can afford to enter them, it's invaluable because what will happen is you will get reader feedback on some of them and you can start tracking your progress. So for me, I did my first draft and I believe it was a semi-finalist in the ScreenCraft uh, Fellowship. Um, and then from there, I was like, okay, well, this it's not terrible. It's, it's okay. So I started to work on it more and I, I tweaked it and I would enter it in different competitions. Um, and it became you know, a second rounder at Austin Film Festival. Um, it became a top 15% Nichols uh, finalist. So all of these different iterations and I would take the feedback and I would incorporate it into the script. That's not to say that I would change my vision or my storyline or the characters. But the readers really do take a lot of time to put in good, valuable notes, especially in those top competitions like AFF, Nichols, um, and ScreenCraft too. Um, but I took the notes and I would incorporate it. And you know, it's very easy to get discouraged and disagree with somebody when they when they try to give you notes. Um, and that, I think, stunts you as a writer. You have to be open. You have to know when to not compromise your vision, but you also have to know when to be open to taking feedback. Um, so I allowed myself to do that process and you know, fail for, for three years <laughs> with this one story. I was kind of you know, mucking about with other ideas too, but eventually um, you know, I got notification that this was, Baltimore was one of the top three finalists for the UCLA uh, screenwriting competition in the fall of 2018. No, I'm sorry, the fall of 2017. <laughs> I'm sorry, fall of 2017. And I was absolutely stunned. And uh, then the announcement went out that it won. And uh, from there, um, I had been chatting with a friend of mine about another project I was working on and my, my phone literally started to blow up. Because, <laughs> I'm not kidding, the, the news the news that I had won the contest had been released by UCLA and they sent it out to production companies, they sent it out to agencies, they sent it out to development execs. Um, and that news uh, had gone out while I was chatting with my friend who happens to now be my manager. I didn't know he was managing clients at the time because he, he was a producer. Um, but I'm starting to get all of these emails from you know, William Morris and CAA and they're like, congratulations, we'd love to chat with you. And I'm like, oh my God, oh, wow. what do I do? And he's like, what is this, what happened? And uh, I told him and he goes, we, we need to meet, we need to talk. So um, we did and I signed with him and he helped me to organize those meetings and you know, make sure that I, I spoke with the right people and, and that's, that got me signed with my reps today. So you talked about something you called a general. Mm. What, it, what is that? So a general is a meeting that happens between you and a development executive. Um, it's a very informal meeting and it's very easy to get worked up about on your first one if, you, if you've never done it before because you feel like you're, you're being judged and you are to a certain extent, but you should take it as a very easy informal first date. 
you're meeting with a production company, you're meeting with a development exec, they've read something, you know, your, your reps, or somehow they've gotten some material that you've written that they like, uh, they're, they're, they've read it, they want to meet with you. So this is, this is a vetting process for them to see, you know, are you, are you good in a room? Are you uh, a little odd? Maybe they don't want to hire you. This is, just a, <laughs> this is just a way to make sure that, you know, if they go to bat for you, that they're not going to end up losing their job. So, um, but you know, it's, it's, a, it's a meeting between you and the executive. You should always come in with a couple of ideas. Um, you know, they'll, they'll have read either a spec, you know, feature film or a spec pilot, um, and they'll have liked it. Go in, always take the water because they'll offer you water. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a good tip. Always <laughs> take the water because your mouth will get dry. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very informal meeting, and you know, it's it's easy to say don't put the pressure on yourself um, if you've never done one. Um, I didn't bomb my first one, but it's certainly, I got better as I progressed. Do you think you have to be empathic or open to be a good writer? I mean, isn't that the job of being a writer? <laughs> Is to tell, you know, the story of, of, of humans. I mean, you can, you can certainly write a, a blockbuster movie. I mean, I know that there are, there are a lot of big studio, um, platforms out there that just, you know, tell, and I'm not going to name any particular films, but there are some that just don't have character. They're all action and maybe storylines. But yeah, I think in order to, to tell stories that people gravitate to, um, you, you have to be willing to tell, you know, a little bit of yourself in each one. Um, one thing that people always ask you when you are writing, um, is why are you the person to tell this story? Why, why, why should you be the, the, the voice of this? And it's easier to, I, I don't want to say prove, but it's easier to, to persuade people that you are the, the, the right person to tell a particular story if you yourself can relate to it. Um, I think that's what we're all looking for. You know, anytime that we go to a movie, we're looking to experience a kind of catharsis. You know, we're looking to experience some kind of human emotion. Um, I find that my best pieces, my best work, are the ones that I've really put myself into, and they have a bit of me in. Um, like, like the Baltimore School of Charm, there's a reason that story is so impactful, and there's a reason that it resonates with people. It's because it's, it's inspired by my family. It's, it's, it's something that you know I've lived through. It's something that other women have lived through. It's, it's a bit of me on that page. Um, Absolutely, you need to be empathetic. Sure, and at the same time, being empathetic and open also has its drawbacks in that maybe things wound you more or, or it's, it's more intense for you. So how are you able to be open and sensitive to things that are coming at you for story ideas, but then also be able to receive notes? And sometimes they're not always going to be positive or go into a room and maybe you read that room and it's not friendly? Because I think that that's learning the writing process. You can learn, you know, it, it's like, let's imagine we were building a building. You've got to have some kind of a floor plan to do it, right? You've got to know the rules before you can break them. So if you can learn structural engineering and how to put it together, then you can shape it into whatever shape you want it to be. 
You know, you can you can make a skyscraper with you know turrets on it if you wanted to. But it, that's how you that's how you find your voice. That's how you start making stories your own. Um, learn the rules before you break them. So you know you can't tell such an emotionally overdrawn story. You know, for where you've got your lead crying or being assaulted or abused for you know two and a half hours. Nobody's going to want to see that. I think that you as a writer need to understand that you have an, a, a duty to your audience to make sure you tell a story that moves forward and that you tell a story that progresses. Don't skimp on character, certainly save those, those moments you know, of, of great emotion, but learn how to construct your story first. You're serving a lot of masters when you're, when you're writing. And if you don't have good structure, I mean, unfortunately that's, your story will fall apart. How does someone become good as a writer? You said at first you weren't sure you could do it, but you wanted to definitely learn, have that as a safeguard. You didn't want to just try it and say you were a writer without doing it. You know, I still have problems saying I'm a writer. I don't know. When, when do you ever become good? I mean, if you're, <laughs> if you're Maya Angelou or somebody like that, then you're definitely a good writer. <laughs> but I think... I don't know. I think I think asking yourself the question, always wanting to be better, always knowing that you can dig deeper and always finding that you can do something better, um, that will help you lead to improving your process. And I, I, I want to stay away from using labels like good or great because that kind of puts, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on yourself, especially for somebody that's just starting out. You have to be okay with failing. You only need one story to spark the next thing in your career. I failed for three years with, with Baltimore. Um, and then when I finally got it right, it struck the right chord. What do you think the difference was? Just working on it? Just honing it? I think, I think it was my um, dogged perseverance of not giving up on it. I, I wanted people to see what I saw. And... I had to find a way to communicate that out. And I think just writing draft after draft after draft after draft. And I've, I've probably gone through 30 iterations of that script. You know, with wow. time, with time, I've certainly gotten better. I've improved my own process so I can shorten that writing cycle. Um, but the first one, I had no idea what I was doing. What were some of the notes that you got and how much of the feedback did you incorporate to change? I mean, I incorporated feedback from a variety of sources. I incorporated it from some of the competitions that I was in, some of the instructors at UCLA. Um, character was one of the things that people would really hone in on. I mean, obviously there are things like, well, this is a bit of a plot hole. You may want to look at this, but those are the obvious things. Um, but people would always talk about making the character more in depth. Like what, what little things can you do to to make a character stick out in someone's mind. Um, there's a, a second female lead in Baltimore. It's a young girl named Shasta. She's 17. And so I wanted, there's, there's a relationship between Millie, the lead, and Shasta. So Millie is trying to outrun the law and she gets stuck in a small town where you know, she, she can't get out of it. And she ends up helping Shasta, the young girl there. Um, but Shasta has, has a stutter. So that was one thing that I was able to, to develop with Shasta. Initially, she didn't have a stutter. 
Um, but she, I, I gave her that impediment to help show her relationship with the world around her. So I think that there are certain traits, there are certain mannerisms, there are certain things that you can do to, um, you know, just build up your character and obviously give them a backstory, but that will inform the decisions on how they interact with the world. Did you miss the two characters when you were finished writing? Was it hard for you to give them up? Um, I tell you what's going to be hard for me is when it gets made. You know, as a writer, you typically don't have any control over something when it leaves your hands. So I hope that the company that ends up buying Baltimore School of Charm, I hope that they do those characters justice because it's not a it's not a movie of the week. You know, it's it's certainly not a melodrama. It's it's a very strong, powerful piece, and it's my hope that a female director will will end up helming it. Um, I think that that's important to actually authentically tell the story. Um, you know, they're they're like your characters are like your children. When you send them out in the world, you hope that they they're received well and that they do well. What were so the fee the feedback initially? was that the, the character, at least the main one, wasn't as fleshed out, and so you really worked on making her just more three-dimensional? More three-dimensional, yeah. And so when you finally, uh, sorry, you won, it was the UCLA screenwriting competition? Mm -hmm. Okay. Their extension. Their extension, okay. And so they, these different agencies just found your email, obviously? No, what happened is when, when there are different categories within the, uh, the competition. So it's best feature, it's best spec pilot, and then best pilot. So, and then you're ranked one, two, and three. So there's a total of nine awards that give out, that they've, that they've given out. And then there's, you know, obviously first place, second place, third place. So when they send the announcement out and they've got a, a list of, you know, thousands of executives and agents that, you know, they've spent years cultivating relationships with, um, when the announcement goes out, they put out an ad in Variety announcing it. And then they also do a, a mass email to all of these executives. Oh. So that's how they got tipped off. And, um, you know, you, you put first place feature on a competition like that and it's going to spark some interest. And Absolutely. fortunately it did. And fortunately it got me, you know, the, the reps that I have today. So then part of having a rep is they're submitting you to work on shows. How, how do like, how does this work? Um, so typically, what happens, and I'm, there's a there's an issue right now with the WGA and the ATA. So I'm not gonna, I'm not going to go into that in this particular okay. interview because I'm there are many people that are much more uh, positioned or much better positioned to speak on that than I am. But typically, what happens is, you know, if you've got a, a spec pilot or a spec feature, they will take that material and they will send it out to different exal uh, development execs and studios, and you know, see if it's a match. Um, and they could, you know you can write on assignment. So let's just say if you meet with a development exec and they like your writing, I'm like, well, I've got this project. Would you be interested in taking a crack at it? So, so that's the job of an agent is to find their client's work. And so how much advance notice do you get when you have a meeting? I have one this week that has been on my calendar for six weeks. Oh, that's good. So you have your outfit, everything's ready. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, otherwise, I had, I, I had a, I had one a couple weeks ago. I had a general a couple weeks ago and she said, she actually had um, an intern and she asked if it was okay if the intern sat in on the meeting. And I was like, it's totally fine. I mean, I'm, it, it wasn't going to throw me off my game. But we talked about it later. She was like, she was like, 
I think you set the bar a little too high for, for generalists because she said, we've had some interesting people come in here. She said, yeah, one of the, one of the worst uh, pieces of advice that I've ever heard writers being given is to dress like your genre. And oh, I was wow. like, what does that mean? She was like, I don't know. She, but I was like, I don't, I was like, what am I, what is, what are you supposed to do? I guess if you write action adventure, you're supposed to dress, I don't know, but don't do that. That's bad advice. Um, <laughs> so just wear something like, you yeah. know, business casual or. I mean, don't dress like a schlub, you right. know, make sure that you look professional and neat clothes that you're comfortable in. I mean, you're, you're not, you're, you're, you're not trying to over impress, you know, you're, you're just, just be yourself. Just look neat and professional and just be yourself. Then how long did it take for you to develop sort of like the pitch that is you? Because they want to ask you this and sometimes people are comfortable and sometimes, so tell me about yourself. How long did that take? It changes every time I go into a room. You have to learn how to read your audience because you may be dealing with somebody who um, is more closed off and maybe they don't want to know so much personal information about yourself. I think instead of developing your pitch, you need to know how to, you really need to know your story because you need, you can't tell your pitch the same way every single time because then it sounds canned. It sounds like you're reading it off of an index card and nobody wants to be, you know, read a PowerPoint slide. You need to be in a position to authentically tell your story at any given you know, notice. How does someone know which story they should write? You should write the one you're afraid to tell. If, you're, if it scares you, then you, you know you need to do it. I have a couple like that right now that I'm working on. Um, I have a play that is going to be going up off Broadway next year. Um, it, was, it was actually one of the very first pieces of writing I'd ever done. I was in a group called the Los Angeles Writers Center for years when I was kind of dipping my toe into to writing and decided I wasn't very good at it. But I had written a play, um, it's a two-act play, um, and it, I wrote it in 2007, and it's actually scary how, how applicable it is to today's current climate. Um, it's about a Mexican-American soldier who's injured in Iraq, and his illegal brother is killed while they're serving over there. So this was right after 9-11. And he comes back to Los Angeles and he discovers that his two younger siblings have been put into foster care and his parents have deport, been deported. And I wrote this in 2007. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and it was, it was, it's called Borderline. Um, and it, it was actually a uh, semifinalist at AFF last year. Again, as soon as, as soon as I started to build up my own confidence in my writing, I, I took off some stuff and I, I dusted them off and I started to submit them out. And I have a friend of mine who I went to USC with um, who runs a theater um, up in Manhattan. And this is a issue that is that she's very passionate about. And I'd never connected the dots before, but I sent it to her and she said, do you want to, I said, do you want to read this? And she said, yeah, absolutely. So she read it and she goes, why don't we do a reading? So we did a reading in April this year in New York and we have decided to workshop it um, with the intent of, of putting it up in the fall of 2020. Now I have not done any of the rewrites yet because I am silently criticizing myself because how do I take the enormity of everything that's going on right now and put it into a two-act play? And again, you know, why am I the person to tell this story? And this is something that I wrestled with. Um, and I, I hope it comes out well. I hope I tell an authentic story and, and I hope I create something that really resonates and moves people. 
But my job as a writer is to really take myself, in this particular instance, is to take myself out of it and to put my fears beside, you know, behind me so I can, so I can draft this piece. Um, we need writers right now more than ever because um, a lot of people's voices are being quieted and this is not the time. Does it scare you? Of course it scares me. <laughs> of course it to scares me. To tell that me. story? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Why does it scare you to tell that story? Um, you know, I certainly don't want anything to ring inauthentic or hollow. Um, and of course, you know, if I'm, if I'm telling a story that doesn't necessarily relate to, you know, my own upbringing, you know, m my family is not immigrants. I mean, they are, they are from Italy, but that was, you know, two, two generations ago. So I wasn't directly impacted by that growing up. But there are a lot of people that are hurting right now. There are a lot of people that are struggling. Um, so for me to have to, you know, that's a lot of weight to carry on my shoulders. But I put that weight upon myself because I feel like this is a very important story to tell. And it's one that I want to tell. Um, so I'm doing a lot of research right now. I'm speaking with immigration attorneys. I am reading, you know, news articles. I'm doing a ton of research. Um, it's, it's my job to tell the story the best that I can. I mean, I'm crafting the story as well. Um, but I find, you know, this, this other piece that, that I've worked on, Daruma, um, this, this particular story, it, it stars two disabled leads, but the movie is not about their disability. And I, I wrote this as a way to deal with my own grief after a member of my family became uh, paralyzed in an accident. Now, the story is not about them. It's, it's not about them at all, but it's inspired by them. And I went through dozens of drafts of that script because I wanted to tell an authentic story. Now, I'm, I'm not a disabled person. I, the last thing I wanted to do was to put anything on the page that was you know, inauthentic, offensive. I, I put that script through so many sensitivity reads, which is, which is an important thing to do as a writer. Um, and that's not to say shy away from telling you know, racy material or things you know, that, that are taboo. Definitely tell those stories. But it's important in this level of heightened awareness to, to put your things through a sensitivity read. And I changed things about that script. I, I, I took things out. You know, one thing that I, I kicked myself for, um, our, one of our leads, John, um, in the script, his, his character's called is Robert. But Robert is a double arm amputee. And I wrote Robert how I thought a double arm amputee would be very limited action, very limited movement. And then we cast John Lawson. And my God, that guy, he is a private pilot. He can scuba dive. He's an amazing photographer. As a writer, when I initially did, I, I limited him. And it took me meeting John and interacting and really ingratiating myself with that community to open myself up. And that's how you tell an authentic story. What is a sensitivity read? So a sensitivity read is to put your material in front of, you know, a person that you are writing about. So let's just say that you're writing about uh, a disabled person or maybe you're writing about somebody who has HIV or maybe you're writing about an immigrant. Maybe you're writing about somebody with topical issues, you know, any, anything that can be considered uh, emotionally or politically charged. So. Uh, dealing with issues of, of race, color, economic class, anything that can be uh, 
pos possibly disparaging to a particular group of people. It's important that you share those materials. You, you, you put it in front of you know, readers and you know, do a table read. You know, do, do, uh, have actors read the parts back to you. And you know, there was, in my play, Borderline, um, one of the feedback, uh, one of the pieces of feedback that I'm working into, I have sort of a, a Greek chorus of Dia de los Muertos characters. And of course, that's, you know, that's something that's very uh, traditionally, you know, Mexican. Um, they're, uh, in, in my story, they function as a Greek chorus and they're kind of ominous figures. But I had a Latino cast and, you know, two out of three of them were like, you really need to be a little bit more positive with these guys because, you know, the Dia de los Muertos is a way to honor family and tradition. And these guys kind of come across as, as baddies. And I'm like, okay, I didn't know that. So as a writer, you need to be open to hearing those kinds of suggestions because, you know, every, everybody knows the stories, you know, of cowboys and Indians, you know, what a, what a classically machismo, you know, imperialistic way of thinking. And, Nobody would make that movie these days. <laughs> like, it's it's it wouldn't happen. You know, you go back and you look at a lot of movies from your childhood or the nineties or you know, a lot of these raunchy comedies. They're creepy. You know, if you you look at a lot of um, movies now, like especially in the eighties, like that's rape culture, and that perpetuates things. You know, people consume the media that you write. Um, it's it's important to have people look at your materials to make sure it, it kind of passes a smell test. Now that's, that's, a, that's a sensitivity read. Interesting. And what about the criticism that somebody who hasn't been through something shouldn't be allowed to tell it? I feel like in this climate, because somebody's voice may be censored or they may be afraid to tell that story, that somebody else who may feel like, I don't know, society might view them as they have more freedoms to tell a story. Yeah should be able to then get that story out there. I have two, two things to say about that. Um, the director of my play, the stage reading that we did, she's, she's uh, Latinx, uh, amazing young auteur. Uh, we had a conversation, you know, we were getting ready for pre-production, and she asked me, she said, are you are you of Hispanic descent? And I said, no, I'm not. She goes, well, your Spanish is pretty good. And I was like, well, I worked with the translator to, to get that going. And um, she asked me, she goes, why are you the one to tell the story? She's like, you know, you're a white woman. Why are you the one to, to tell this story? And my answer was that no one else is telling it. No one else is telling the story. And, you know, regardless of my background or my skin color or, or anything, I live in this world and these are issues that I care about. So if I care about them enough to try to talk about them and to try to push them out into the world, you know, my my story may not be the end all be all, you know, you know, end of the subject matter. It's that's not gonna be the case. But this is something that I care deeply about. And I, you know, I live in this world. I'm impacted by these issues too. So that's that's one way that I, I address those particular questions. Um, I had a general a couple weeks ago with another production company, a very well-known uh, film company, and you know, as a writer, you're always constantly going through, I mean, at least I am personally, you know, self-doubt and kind of self-loathing and thinking that you suck. Um, but she was talking about a lot of the pieces that I write and she noticed a common thread, the development exec that I was sitting with. She was like, you tend to really give characters that don't have a voice, a voice. 
And I, I started to look back at the pieces that I would write at, or that, I, that I'd been working on. And, you know, when you look at Borderline that deals with the immigration issues and Daruma, which deals with disability. And I have another one where the lead is a little deaf girl. Um, and then you deal with domestic violence issues in, in Baltimore. And I didn't really realize that. And I mean, even though, you know, I didn't necessarily have the, the best upbringing and I've certainly struggled. I am, she, she said it very eloquently. She goes, you're using your privilege to give voice to those who, who don't have a voice. So that's something, I actually walked out of the office a little teary, <laughs> um, but that really rang true to me. What makes a great story? Wow, there's a, that's, a, that's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, I mean, character. I think that you can, I think that you can forgive a lot of things if you have a character that's interesting to watch on the screen or the stage. What ruins a story for you? Like, what takes you out of it? If I'm reading a story, if I'm just looking at something on the page, um, lazy writing. Like, if somebody has so many typos and plot holes, um, I once had to, I didn't have to, I offered to read a script from somebody um, just to give my notes and my feedback. And within 10 pages, I, I was just angry because it was, it was, it had so many typos, it had so many errors, there was just grammatical mistakes. There was no consideration for time and location and there was just, I, I was, why was I reading that? Like it was, it was a clear indication to me that the writer did not respect my time because they did not do their due diligence. They did not, what they handed me was not their best effort. So that took me completely out of the story. I can forgive a couple of typos every now and again. I mean, I make them myself. I submitted something that I found a typo on like 10 minutes later and I, I was kicking myself. But I knew that I'd comb through that document enough times to make sure that there wasn't, you know, a lot of glaring mistakes. But for somebody to be just so blatantly blasé with, you know, punctuation and grammar and basic elements like, like time and space, I, I won't work. I won't work with them. Can you give me an example of what a plot hole is? Yeah. So there, this particular story that I was that I was referencing, they um, were discussing uh, a geographical location, you know, set in the Southwest, and then all of a sudden, you know, in in the time frame of the story, three hours later, they somehow ended up two thousand miles away. At in a totally different location, and there was no consideration as to how the characters got there. It was just what? Like, how did you suddenly end up there? <laughs> it was a massive plot hole. Okay, yeah, that, <laughs> that, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's like okay, took me completely out of the story. So, in other words, um, how somebody's getting from point A to point B, there's no consideration in the story for that. I mean, you don't have to spoon feed your audience everything, but if you've you know, the audience will sit within the rules that you establish. So it's very important to establish the rules of your universe. This is this goes for people that write sci-fi. This goes for people that write, um, you know, magical, you know, uh, stories like, you know, the world of Harry Potter or something like that. The rules of the magic are very clearly defined. Once you start to break the, own, your, the rules that you set up or you start to give too many exceptions, your whole world falls apart. So aside from being scared to write something, how do you know your protagonist is someone that you want to write about? You want to spend like years working with? 
this has happened to me on a couple of occasions, but eventually my characters start speaking to me. They have gotten so vocal that they actually start talking with their own voices. And to me, that's almost like a state of reaching like a runner's high. It's, it's rarely achieved when, when, when I've done it. Um, I've done it in about four of my scripts, but those to me are the characters that have uh, the strongest voices and certainly have been the pieces and the projects that have been put out into the world and have gotten me um, you know, where I am and the attention that I've gotten. Um, that's, that's key to me is when those voices are so clear. It's like when I'm writing dialogue, I don't even have to think about what the response would be. The character just automatically says it to me. It's, it's a weird phenomenon, but it, it does happen. Have you ever had it where the characters aren't speaking to you and then you're like, I don't think this is going to work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of being a good writer is knowing when to walk away from something. Um, I had a book that I wrote that was 42,000 words long. It was the first book that I'd ever written and I was shopping it around and I found myself going to edit it and trying to figure out what to do with it and like why it wasn't working, why it wasn't resonating with people. And then I realized myself, you know, I'm 10 pages into it and I'm bored. The character just had no voice. Um, so I realized that that was a problem and it's, it's important to recognize those things in your writing. You have to, you have to you know, certainly be aware of what's working, but you also have to be self-aware enough to accept what's not working. Do you think you were scared to give the appropriate voice to that character or it just from the get-go, it just wasn't the right sort of combination? I think it just wasn't, I was trying to force something. I was trying to, I was trying to force a narrative and you know, I'm not saying you, should, you shouldn't wait for inspiration to strike because you may never get inspired. It's important to keep pushing through and keep pushing and, you know, write every day, even if it's, even if it's bad, you can always go back and edit. I mean, one of the wonderful sayings, and I, I forget who says this, but you, you can't edit a blank page, edit. So, I mean, obviously edit, but you've got to write. But it's, it's important to, to understand that there are sometimes it's not working. That's not to say trash the idea. There may be a time, you know, five or 10 years later, you'll come back and you're like, oh my God, this is, this is the key that makes that work. This is the piece that makes it fit together. So just because you don't have it at the offset doesn't mean that it's a failure or it's never going to work. Certainly save that work, um, but just recognize when it's time to maybe move on from something. Can you take us back to the first character that Innocent started talking to you that, I mean, it was like this real person that was like almost in your ear. What was that like? So the first character that started to talk to me was for actually the first TV pilot that I wrote. When I got signed by my agents, I didn't have a TV sample. And they were like, well, we need a TV sample to, to send you out. So I wrote a pilot um, and the lead in that show, I'd been mulling this idea for so long. Um, I actually wrote it in about a week. Um, and the lead character in that, like she, she had just been so real um, that when I started to write her out, I mean, she's got a best friend and a daughter and this very complicated relationship with her job and her ex-husband, and she was just so real to me. And uh, the, the character's name is Maggie. Um, whenever she would talk, it was just her voice, just, just coming out. And that in turn just formulated, you know, her her viewpoint of the world just formulated my 
uh, decisions with the, the characters around her, and everyone in the story just, just came to life. And it's become my signature piece that my reps send out to get uh, my generals in my meetings. It took you a week to write it? Yeah. And how many pages is it? Uh, this is 59 pages long. Because it's a TV It's, like, it's an hour TV pilot. I know you're incredibly busy, you're doing many different things. Where do you find the time to write and do you write every day? I try to write every day. Um, actually, I take the train a lot in Los Angeles and I will write my ideas. You know, I will, I will work in a note, or, you know, my, my iPhone, I will type on my um, notes there. Um, I do write every day. Um, for me, I find that mornings are better with coffee, you know, when I'm, when I'm by myself and things are quiet in the house. Um, that's to me the, the time that I like to do it. Um, and again, I mean, you, you, can't, you can't wait for inspiration to strike because you may never end up writing something. You, you have to keep pushing every single day. I tend to like to keep a lot of projects in the air at the same time, um, whether that's developing a new pilot or developing a new feature. I was chasing the rights to a book. Um, I've, got, I've got this uh, play that's going up now. Um, the, the difference between wanting to write and, and, and being a writer is writing. You're a writer when you say you are. First off, what does the word Daruma mean and when did you start writing it? So I actually started to write Daruma um, after a member of my own family suffered a spinal cord injury. Um, they had a motorcycle accident and became a T4, 5, and 6 paraplegic. And I wrote this short as a, as a way to process my own grief. I mean, I, you know, as a, as a writer, that's how I dealt with my feelings. Um, it's, I mean, it's devastating. I mean, you know, and disability can affect anybody at any given point in time. I mean, it is, it is a universal thing that everybody deals with. Um, but I, when I was at USC, I studied uh, Asian art history for one of my general requirement classes. And one of my classes, uh, we, we studied this painting called Ika showing his severed arm to Daruma. I didn't know anything about this painting, but it was written in the Muromachi period by a guy named Sashutoyo. Um, it shows the Daruma, which is the Bodhidharma, the guy that founded Zen Buddhism. Now the legend goes is that he meditated in a cave for nine years and his limbs fell away. He had no need for them anymore. So he was this sort of round object, you know what I mean? He had no, no arms, no legs, nothing. Um, and the painting depicts this guy named Ika, who was a would-be pupil, a disciple who was so desperate to study with the Daruma. So Ika severs his own arm and he presents it to the Daruma. And he wakes the Daruma from a trance and the Daruma's like, you've missed the point of the lessons. And he turns them away. And I was so haunted by this painting because it was so garish and it was, it was just so ugly. Um, but what happened was when my family member was recovering from their injury, um, they you know, spent months in rehabilitation. They were roomed with a young man who had lost both of his arms in an electrical accident. And you know they had both turned 21 and they both had their lives ahead of them. They were both you know, just, just starting. And you could see you know, the indomitable spirit that they had. You know, they were you know, getting into all kinds of mischief and stuff into the, into the recovery center. And they were still the same people. They had just had these life-changing injuries but they were the same people. 
Um, so this is where the idea of Daruma came because here was one young man who had just lost his arms and here's a y another young man who had just lost both of his legs. Wow. So together, I, you know, the, the, the theme of this is, you know, it becomes one person. Now, if you look online, you will see what a Daruma doll is. Now, a Daruma doll is a round doll that is popular in Japanese culture. When you get one, you color in one eye black and you make a wish. When your wish comes true, you color in the other eye. So, uh, you know, the, the Daruma features um, as an underlying theme um, in the story. But the story I wrote, I, I wrote a fictionalized uh, version of this relationship that unfolded. So this is a story that follows a very bitter, angry paraplegic named Patrick, who discovers that he's got a four-year-old daughter from a one-night stand before he got injured. And he takes her for an insurance payout, but he quickly learns that he, he can't parent. So he has to take her to live across the country with her maternal grandparents. And the only person that can help him make this journey is his double arm amputee. So um, that's, that's the, the story of Daruma, and that's something that um, I've been working on for a number of years now. And we have been uh, connecting with organizations like the Reeve Foundation, uh, the Rudderman Family Foundation, Respectability. Um, we've been working with those organizations to help build a platform to get this story out. Um, you know, one of the things that I think was shocking to me when I, you know, won the contest and I got signed and I got repped, I thought, you know, this is it. I, my, my screenwriting career is going to take off. And that's not necessarily the case. You still have to be your own advocate and you still have to be prepared to pursue your passion projects because not everybody's going to see the vision that you have for something. Now, we're fortunate in that we have, you know, the team with Jeruma has, um, you know, we, we've partnered with people who have seen the vision. We're authentically casting these roles. We are, we are casting two disabled actors to play these, these lead roles. Um, I don't want to have a situation where we've got an able-bodied actor um, who can, you know, play a disabled role. That's not what we're setting out to do. So um, it's, a, it's an uphill battle to produce this project, but we're doing a crowdfunding um, October 1st uh, with Seed and Spark, which is an indie filmmaker platform. And I encourage anybody who has a script or they want to shoot a proof of concept and they don't know where to go, look there, look at other projects, look at what other people are doing. Um, it's a great place to connect with other filmmakers too. Yeah, they have some fantastic campaigns. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you have a website that's already set up for Daruma? I do. Mm -hmm. I do, actually. And I think one of the most interesting things about that website is that we have put content from other sources like Respectability and the Ford Foundation. They all have toolkits for disability inclusion in Hollywood. So as a writer, we talked about sensitivity reads earlier. These, uh, they're PDFs that you can download from the website. They actually have different tips and steps that you as a writer or a producer or a filmmaker um, can draw from and put into your own work. And I think it's great too that you already have your website ready to go. I mean, I saw some of the cast yeah, yeah. and your director and his yep. bio yep. and your bio. Yep. So I think that's great. So many people, I know they don't, I mean, it's not ready yet. And, you know, I think it's great because you, but right now it's uh, August. And yeah. so we have a few months and that 
I mean, it's fully fleshed out website. It looks great. Well, we actually put that website up in almost a year and a half ago now. Oh, you did? Oh, oh. yeah. That website's been up for a while. Oh, my you goodness. Know, one of the things that we've learned about this process is that nobody's going to do it for you. You have to be able to, and I mean, this is where I put my producer hat on. You have to be able to just draw that line in the sand and be like, okay, this is it, we're going. And I find that when you start to get people to, to come on board, one of the, and one day I'm gonna write a book about this. One, one day this is gonna be my, my book to filmmaking. But do you know the story about film, or, uh, Stone Soup? Are you uh, with Shel Silverstein? No, no, oh, it's okay. actually, it's a, it's a, it's a old folk, uh, folk tale. Uh, there's a, a man who wanders into a village and he's hungry and nobody will help him and all of the villagers, all the villagers turn him away. So he's like, all right, well, I, I have a rock. So he goes to the center of town and he's like, I have a magic rock. This magic rock will make amazing soup for everybody to eat. He's like, well, in order to get started, I just need a little bit of water. So someone's like, all right, I'll, I'll buy into this. I'll give you a little bit of water. He's like, okay, well, great. So now that we have this water and this magic rock, we just need a little bit of fire. So the owner's like, well, I've got some wood, so I'll contribute some wood. And gradually, everybody starts contributing to this pot, and they make this amazing soup. So if you look at the process of making an independent feature, like we're doing with Daruma, as sort of making a film soup, <laughs> you, you start to look at, you know, you bring this to the table, and they're like, oh, well, I can bring this to the table. And you start building a team and a collaboration, and eventually you get to the point where we are, where you, you know, we did the website, then we did a casting, and we connected with um, uh, you know, casting directors and agents, and we started to actually cast you know, disabled actors in the lead roles, and that opened up the doors to this other community, and now we're partnering with organizations, and it's one thing on top of another, and it's, it's very easy to get discouraged in this process because it takes a long time. But honestly, these things should take a long time. They, they should because they, they need to be good. They, they're important. So that's really interesting. So that you don't want to rush it because it means a lot to you instead yeah. of just putting it out and it's half done and then there's criticisms and you go, yeah, I know that's, that's smart. I mean, it's, it's one thing to wait for something to happen. And then it's another to be like, you know what, it's, it's time. Um, it's, it's finding a balance. So we, we could wait forever and, you know, look for the right, you know, financers to, to come and, and give us money to make this project. But the fact of the matter is, is that casting to lead actors to, you know, that have disabilities, that's not really something people want to take a gamble on. That's not something, you know, a lot of people, you know, as a producer or, you know, a film financier or whatever would be like, well, what's, who's, who's your lead actor? Because their job is to make money. You know, they've got, they've got to pay their bills. They've got to, you know, kids to send to school or whatever. It's not a risk that people are, are necessarily willing to take, but that doesn't mean that the project shouldn't be made. So it's up to you to find creative ways to make it happen. And you're also the writer? For I am the writer. Yeah. And so you said it's loosely based on a family member. It's not their exact story. No, right? it's not. It's not loosely based on them at all. Actually, oh, it's, it's not. No, no, no. My, th this family member never discovered that they had a child from a one night stand. <laughs> it's, oh. it's, it was written as a way for me to process uh, my own grief. What was very important for me about this particular story, if you look at most narratives where you have a disabled character, the, the storyline tends to go from being able-bodied to having a tragic accident and then suddenly being disabled and then living your life. You know, then that's, that's the inspirational part of the story. It was very important for me to tell a story 
where it had two leads that were disabled. And that, that wasn't a plot point. That wasn't a device. It's nothing for them to overcome. It, it just is what it is. Because listen, 25% of the American population lives with a disability, yet 2% are represented on screen. Hmm. So we talked about you know using your privilege as a platform for underrepresented voices. This is single-handedly, for me, the most important project that I'm working on right now. What was the writing process like for Daruma? Lonely. <laughs> it was really lonely. Um, I kept this story in a drawer for years. Um, again, it was it was a way for me to process something that had happened that was you know very very personal um, and affected me greatly. But you know, I I can't I can't necessarily say and this this may be awful, but like had had I never personally experienced what a disability or an injury you know was like with 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 a, with a family member, this might not have been a story that I'd ever you know told. I and I mean again, I'm not I'm not uh, disabled myself, but I am the person to tell this story. Um, because I want to tell it, and I want to tell it authentically. But the process for writing this was was very lonely because I didn't have anyone to share it with. And it sat in a drawer for about, you know, 10 years, and it was awful. It was awful. But oh, that was long. Wow. Well, I'd started writing it as a short first. Um, and then again, I'm, as, I'm, as I'm developing my craft and honing my process, and I took it, you know, I took a, an outline to my class with Justin Trevor Winters. And, you know, he looked at that one, and he looked at the Baltimore School of Charm, and he was like, you need to write the Baltimore School of Charm. So I, I did that. And then as I started to develop that, I wanted to branch out and work on other projects. So I started to work on revisions of Daruma that were all equally terrible. <laughs> but I started to enter the script into different screen, screenwriting competitions. And I got feedback and I got notes. And over the, process, uh, the course of about two, two and a half years, it became its current iteration. Um, and then we, you know, it, it found its director, Alex Yellen. He, I gave it to him to read. Um, and by page three, he's laughing. And I'm like, what is so funny? Why are you laughing? He's, he's like, he's like, this is hilarious. And I'm like, it's not supposed to be a comedy. And he's like, but what you've written is really funny. So he read it and he could see what I saw. And he was like, I would really like to direct this. And I was like, okay. So we now have Alex attached to it as a director. And then we cast John and Toby um, to shoot our proof of concept uh, last fall, just so we could, you know, it's so much easier to visually tell your story. So I, I, I encourage you, if you can shoot a proof of concept, to do that, especially if you're trying to produce your own feature. Um, but from there, you know, I had my actors read the script and I talked about, you know, doing sensitivity reads. And John Lawson, the guy that plays Robert, like I said, I had initially written the character that was very limited, and John can do so much. I mean, you would you would assume that somebody with you know no arms would you know not be able to do the things John does, but that was my own naivete. So, with Daruma, I know you're launching a crowdfunding on Seedon Spark in October of this year, but did you also try to get a production company? We've talked with a couple people. We've had interest. I mean, we've had a lot of people come to us and say this is an amazing idea. Like, I love this. Who are you casting as the leads? And then when we say that we're actually authentically casting the disabled, you know, our two disabled leads, enthusiasm fizzles. Because again, you've got to look at what translates to, to, to box office sales. So it, it's so much easier to attach a name actor to a, to a script. And I mean, especially something that's got, you know, these challenging characters to play. Um, but I don't want to compromise the vision of this project. Like, the intent of it is to not... The intent is to to be a 
vehicle and a platform for for underrepresented voices and I, I want it to be the first of its kind. I mean, can you name another movie like this? No, well, I can think of where there's been named actors that have played disabled individuals, right. but not, um, no. It's I, very rare to see. Except for Dodgeball, sorry. I mean, they did have, <laughs> no, I mean, people with, I don't know if they were uh, autistic or what different, you know, but Dodgeball had right. people but, that but were the, But the butt of a joke, right? Yes, yeah, very true. Yeah, so disparaging. Very true. But, you know, it's, it's very rare to come across something completely new. And this is a story that has never been told before, and especially in the way that, we've, that we're wanting to tell it. So that in of itself is very unique, and that's not something that I'm willing to compromise on, which is why we're going the hard route and we're doing this ourselves. What roadblocks have you run into with Daruma in terms of you've presented it to production companies, other things maybe that we're not aware of? I mean, I think that's the problem most indie filmmakers running into is financing. So where do you get the money from? Like, how, how, do you, how do you put this into reality? We've done three different budgets. We've done one in a million, we've done it half a million, and then we've done this bootstrap one that we're gonna be crowdfunding for in October. Um, you know, there's, there's challenges with every project. So first of all, like, is your idea good? Can you get it on the page? Can you articulate it? Can you start finding people that believe in your vision? Um, this has been something that we've been working on solidly now for the last three years. And we're right now at the point where we've, we feel like we've gotten our platform and our, our village of people and supporters together. And we're ready to, to take the next step and attempt to raise the funds for production. Um, but again, you know, this is, this is something that every project runs into is, is who comes up with the money. <laughs> so what are you learning from these obstacles? Well, one, I'm learning that nobody is going to do it for you. you. You have to be able to do it yourself. You have to put yourself in uncomfortable positions and be prepared. Um, you know, if, again, if you're not good at pitching, then you need to, to become good at pitching. You need to, to learn how to tell your story. You need to learn how to tell your story succinctly. Um, you know, I'm also learning to celebrate the small victories. Just because, you know, you don't get from A to Z immediately, you can't neglect every step that goes in between. You know, like for us, getting uh, our cast attached, our amazing cast attached, that was a win, that was a celebration. Then getting our, our film, uh, our, our um, proof of concept shot. You know, we, while we were doing that, the Woolsey fire was going on. Oh. We lost a location. Actually, oh. we lost a couple locations during that because I mean, we were going to be shooting up in Agora Hills, um, and we ended up we we called in a couple favors and, and begged, borrowed, and steal, uh, stole. That's terrible English. <laughs> That's terrible. Uh, we begged, borrowed, and stole, um, but we ended up getting you know some new friends along the way who helped us. But it's very important. And actually, a friend of mine, a friend of mine, told this to me. A producer, a friend of mine, when when I won the contest, it's very important to celebrate the small victories. Um, when I was at USC, I had a professor, uh, amazing on-camera professor named Joe Hacker, um, and he would coach young actors, you know, how to uh, go about their career. And he loved to tell the story about when he was younger and he was working on Broadway and he went up to his idol and was like, you know, I want to be where you are. How do I get to be where you are? And the response was, you can't, but there are a million ways. And he always liked to tell us that, you know, every small thing, every small success was one pearl on a very long strand. 
So you just have to keep threading that needle and finding the courage and the strength to keep going. Great story. What does it take to get a Hollywood movie made? I don't know. I haven't made one yet. <laughs> um, I imagine it takes quite a bit of luck. So um, do you want to make Hollywood movies? I feel like they're, I have some scripts that I've written that are, that are certainly more commercial than the ones that I have, um, you know, I'm, I'm working towards. But I think that as a, a young screenwriter, you know, starting out, it's very important to establish your voice and your brand. Um, it, it, you know, I have a lot of fun projects that I don't spend my time working on or developing because I'm not there yet. You know, and those could be the, the quote unquote Hollywood movies. I feel like at this point, you know, I'm proving myself and I'm, I'm, you know, putting my work out there and I've got to put my best foot forward. And, you know, maybe a Hollywood movie isn't the thing that I want to build my platform on. Um, I'm not looking to make a quick buck, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, being paid for writing is awesome. When I got my first check as a writer, I was, I took a picture of it because it was an incredible feeling. Um, but you have to consider that, you know, you're in it for the long haul. It's very easy, I think, for a lot of people to burn out. And if you can find your voice and your passion and the things that keep you drive, you know, keep your drive going, that will sustain a career. Does it scare you to write non-Hollywood movies? No, because I find that that's the thing that I, I tend to play in the most. I mean, where I'm emotionally at my headspace is at. The thing that scares me is writing, you know, science fiction and things like that, because I feel like maybe I don't have the imagination to come up with the world, you know, um, of this, maybe a post-apocalyptic or something. Maybe I would be very afraid of doing something cliche. How do you top Star Trek? How do you, how do you top Star Wars? You know, and who, who am I to even try? Um, but again, you know, we go back to the point, great storytelling isn't about these set pieces. It's about the characters. So if you look at most science fiction pieces, they're actually stories about political turmoil or refugees or something like that. So again, go back to character, go back to your story. Have you ever thought about stopping and said to yourself, you know, there's easier ways to spend my life? All the time. <laughs> I mean, I've, you know, carved out a career for myself as a marketing and creative professional you know, copywriting and, and art directing and things like that. And if I really gave myself to that, maybe I could be very successful, but I feel like there would, I, there would be this hole inside of me that would just be devoid. Um, you know, I think that maybe, maybe I'm not very smart. Maybe I should have given up a long time ago because I keep, you know, putting myself through this and, you know, trying and, and keep going. But I think that that's part of the challenge that a lot of writers face is this self-doubt and the imposter syndrome, and especially as a woman and, and trying to break through in this industry, it's very hard. Um, yeah, you grapple with that all the time. And writing by nature is a very solitary activity. Um, it's, it's very easy to want to throw in the towel. And that's why it's so important to celebrate those little victories. Just one little thing, you know, one, one connection, one, one interview, one, you know, chance encounter uh, could change your world. But by naming the imposter syndrome and sort of calling it out, does that take away its power a little bit? You have to be aware of it when it's happening. I mean, there, there are times, you know, and I think that this comes with age and maturity as well. I mean, certainly I'm, I'm more grounded now that I am in my 30s than I was in my 20s. Um, I'm able to own my mistakes more readily. I'm able to objectively look at myself 
and you know separate the the need of me that need or the, the part of me that needs approval um, to the part of me that that you know is trying to to create something as well. So that if I can give myself enough space to fail, then I can I can help overcome that imposter syndrome. But it's it's not an easy thing to do, and I know a lot of people grapple with it. But when you're in that space of writing about just some character that is our, it's so real, it's speaking to you, it's kind of scary, it might be a little edgy. Is that sounds like it's not being an imposter by any means? That's such a rare state of enlightenment that you know. It, like I said, it's like a, it's almost like getting a runner's high. It's not. It doesn't happen all the time, but it it is magic when it does. What's the hardest part of writing a screenplay for you? Getting to the end of it. It's so easy sometimes to just give up and say that it's you know you can't finish it. So. I always try to start with an outline. I always outline my work first, and I know a lot of people don't work this way, but I find that if my outline falls apart, then my screenplay falls apart. So when I was first starting off, of course, I didn't necessarily put the time into developing the outlines or the character beats or doing all of this you know, back writing, but that's actually where the writing starts to happen, is when you can, you know, the, the pilot that I wrote in a week the reason I was able to do that in a week is because I'd been thinking about it for years. And at that point, I'd learned how to make an outline and I'd learned how to you know, structure six acts within a TV show. So this is my first time putting it into a practical application. But because I knew the steps and I knew what to do, I was able to go ahead and execute it very quickly. Um, that's not necessarily the case for all, all of the things that I write. Um, but I do find that if you don't have a good outline to start with, then it's very, very, very difficult to tell a compelling story, one that will hold together, um, and one that will take you on the emotional arc that your character needs to go on. What's been your hardest year here in Los Angeles, and then what's been your easiest year, and why? Well, I can say that this year has been my easiest year, and that's partly because um, I'm in the best place I've ever been emotionally. I'm, I'm getting married in a couple weeks. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm actually marrying the director of Jeruma, um, oh, Alexander okay. Yellen. Did this <laughs> so, happen before he was um, cast on? Or, or yeah, after? actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, he didn't get the job because he proposed. Oh, okay, okay, all right. <laughs> no, I say, way to go. That's no, 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 that's one way to get a job in Hollywood. <laughs> no, we, um, we, we started dating a few years ago, and you know he's been very supportive of my work. He himself is a director and a cinematographer, so he understands uh, what it's like to be a professional in the business. Um, and he picked up the script to Daruma and he read it and just he really liked it. So that's how he got the job. Um, but this year has been wonderful. I've you know this I I have spent the last twenty years which is how long I've been out here. This is actually my, my, my 20th year of being out here in LA. Okay. Um, I have, it is the, the culmination and the, the, the accumulation of every failure that I've had, every success, every person that I've met. This is, this is all coming together now. So it's, it's funny that after being at this business for so long, I feel like I finally am getting a leg up. So I don't want to say that I've ever had like a particularly a worse, you know, a worse year. There are certainly years, you know, where I've been, you know, financially strapped and I've had to, you know, take on, you know, extra side gigs to make money and things like that. It, all, all the things that people out here go through and deal with. Um, but right now I'm living my best life. 
And so you're getting married and crowdfunding <laughs> and maybe shooting a movie or no, well, no that's going to be 20. That'll be 2020. Okay. So, but you know, we just, we didn't want to, you know, make things too easy on ourselves by just planning the wedding. So we decided to crowd, uh, do the crowdfunding right after. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I'm assuming you're doing the crowdfunding first and then the wedding. No, the after. wedding and then the crowdfunding. Oh my goodness. So, okay. Yep. That's very ambitious. Well, again, nobody, nobody's going to do it for you. So, um, I can tell you this much. We, we shot our proof of concept together last year. And if your relationship can withstand making a film together, I think you're set up for success. I think you're right. I think they say like so, travel together and yeah. different things. I think it make it make a movie. That's that's number one. And yeah. make it in the summertime, by the way. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's when the summertime with no air conditioning. Certainly in Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. Check. <laughs> Do you like to challenge yourself? Like, do you like to kind of like accomplish one thing and go, okay, I did that. I want to set the bar higher. Um, I get restless very easily. And that's not to say that I get bored with projects. I think for me, I'm always sort of battling these inner, inner demons of, of, you know, proving that I'm good enough or proving that I belong a certain place. I mean, again, I didn't, I didn't come from a family with money. I, I earned my way into USC and I had to work hard to stay there because I was on scholarships and grants. Those, Great. those could be taken away from me at any time. Sure. So it's sort of a discipline that I have given myself to, I mean if you ask any of my friends or, or my, my colleagues one of the things that I'm known for is, is always having multiple balls in the air and being a very driven person um, I I thrive on being active and busy um, I I don't like to necessarily wait for things to happen for me I, I like to try to be the driver of my own fate um, I mean again it's it's the stone soup analogy the more that you put out into the world, the more that you will get back. Were you thinking about what your life would look like when you were driving cross country? I realized you were 18 and you were blasting Tori Amos. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I wanted, I thought, I thought my, my life was going to be, you know, theater and, you know, if I was lucky film, you know, my, my love started in, in theater and storytelling. I just, I discovered that side of myself when I was in high school and it's, it's stuck with me, you know, you know, narrative storytelling is something that I've just been, I, I knew that I wanted to do it. And I didn't know that the thing for me that would take off would be the writing. I, I had no idea I had these stories in me. I had no idea that sleepy toes would become what it was. I had no idea that I would be a children's book author. And I, I didn't know that the stories that, were the closest to me would be the ones that would reach out in the world. And I think it's, it's, it's a bit of bravery to, to be able to tell those stories and open yourself up. But as a writer, that's what resonates with people. So if you can put a bit of yourself on the page, if you can be, you know, brave and, and share that and let people see that, then I think that you're doing yourself and the world a service. When you were attending USC, you said you had a 40 hour week oh, yeah. job. Oh yeah. So how were you managing that? I'm just curious. I didn't sleep. <laughs> mm -hmm. I learned time management skills. You know, it's, it's, you know, you had asked earlier about like, you know, do you write? Yeah, I write. Like I, I try to, I don't do it at the same time every day, but I do do it every day a little bit, whether it's jotting down an idea or if it's fleshing out, you know, a pitch or a log line or something, I do something every single day. So time management, I think is, is a very important skill to have as a writer. Um, you know, 
it's it's a good professional skill to have too. You know, you never want to be late to a meeting. You don't want to waste anybody's time. I feel like um, being being aware of of you know other people's needs as well can help serve your own. If a friend were in your shoes, what advice would you give them? Change careers. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, you know, I I know this about myself. I get, you know, I can get discouraged. And it's sometimes it's very hard to see the forest through the trees. Uh, I hope I'm using that expression correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I have to do the same thing. Like, wait, did I get it I backwards? Really right. <laughs> um, but I think... You know, if, if it was if it was a, a female friend, I think it would be to to find your tribe. And I know that sounds a little cliche, but it does make a difference. You know, you have to find your audience and you have to find your platform. And the one thing that I would tell any writer is to utilize every single experience that you have ever had and put it in your writing and put it in your work. I can't tell you the number of times that you know my skills as a graphic designer have come in handy because I've done pitch decks and I haven't had the money to pay for anybody to design the pitch deck, so I've done it myself. Or I have had to develop characters. You know, I, I learned ASL as a little girl and I've, I've, I've forgotten a lot of it, but I have you know worked on projects or gotten meetings or something because of that particular skill set. So don't discount any experience that you've had in your life prior to you becoming a writer. That's what makes you interesting. That's what makes you unique. That's what makes you, you know, that's what makes people want to talk to you. So don't discount any experiences that you've, that you've had and, and see if you can find a way to put that into your work.